All right, folks, as we draw near to another critical election, it's not only about casting your vote, it's about elevating your voice, making your voice be heard. AMAC is more than just a senior discount organization. They unite like-minded patriots like you and I, committed to preserving our cherished values and actively opposing the leftist agenda that's sweeping across America. Just look at their recent victories. AMAC members helped to push forward an investigation into practices that inflate drug prices. They successfully defeated ranked choice voting in order to protect traditional voting methods, and they've also helped block a federal takeover of elections. As AMAC's membership grows, Washington is listening. Every new member strengthens this movement. If you love America, visit AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News to become a four-year member for just $30. That's a great discount. AMAC is not only better for America, it's better for you. Membership gives you access to the AMAC magazine, free Social Security and Medicare guidance, money-saving discounts, trusted news, sweepstakes, and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S slash Just News. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Just News. Hello, America, and happy Friday. Yes, we made it to Friday. Doesn't seem possible, but we sure did. And I want to thank everybody for listening and tuning in this week, reading at Justin News. We've had just some extraordinary traffic at justinnews.com and, of course, on the Justin News mobile apps and the iOS, Apple Store, and in the Android Store. There's a lot of news that has broken in the last 14 days. The drama over the House leadership, Kevin McCarthy coming in. Then, after getting the rules, and Republicans have been on a fast track moving a lot of pieces of legislation, delivering on what they told the American people they will do. A really historic vote yesterday where the vast majority of Democrats voted against a bill that would condemn the large number of attacks on churches and pro-life facilities in America. The Republicans are making Democrats take a lot of hard votes at the beginning part of this, and they're hinting at what's to come. Last night, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy spent a few minutes with our own Nick Ballacy and said, hey, one of the things I'm thinking of doing is releasing all the security footage from the January 6th Capitol raid so we could see who was going on, what went on with Ray Epps, all the things that we need to know about. That could be a big moment. A lot of people calling for that for the, just the transparency or the lack thereof that the January 6th committee gave us in the last two years. McCarthy also said he has real grave questions and hopes to investigate why did they raid Donald Trump's compound in Mar-a-Lago, but didn't raid any of Joe Biden's homes, even after there were multiple discoveries in both places, right? Seemed to be the same standard. The speaker clearly wants to talk about that. And there has been a significant development while that's going on in Congress in the classified document scandal that now has enshrouded the current president, President Joe Biden. Three known discoveries of classified documents since November 2nd last year. We were kept in the dark until this week. The first was November 2nd at his Penn Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania. That was reported to the Justice Department on November 4th, well before the election, well before November 18th, when Merrick Garland was set out there and said, I'm naming a special prosecutor for Donald Trump. Well, he didn't do it for Joe Biden even let us know at that point that Joe Biden had a similar problem. New documents discovered December 20th in the garage of Joe Biden's home. That's not a place you want classified documents being held. And then January 5th, more document, at least one more document found in the home of Joe Biden. Sloppy storage, a little bit of difference with the president because vice presidents don't have the authority to declassify like President Trump does. 
in addition to that, we broke this big story. We also talked about it in the show yesterday that at the University of Pennsylvania, where Joe Biden got a $900,000 set of payments from 17 to 19, kind of a laid back job as a guest lecturer, had his center there, that $67.6 million of Chinese money in the form of grants and contracts flowed to the Pennsylvania University of Pennsylvania, known as Penn, in 2013 to 2019, almost the vast majority of that, $47.7 million, while Joe Biden was in the employee there. So China money followed Joe Biden to the University of Pennsylvania. That makes it a little more concerning to people to know that documents were classified and stored there in an insecure manner. As the attorney general said yesterday, when he named the special prosecutor, this was not an authorized location for classified information. In other words, the law was broken. The money flows to that university. And then when Joe Biden becomes president, the top two officials in that university, the chairman of the board of trustees, the president of the university get plum ambassadorships, one in Canada, one in Germany. And then the university turns around through its academics, its professors, its faculty, and it pressures the Justice Department in the form of an open letter saying, please shut down the China the FBI's most important counter-espionage program, rooting out Chinese spies in academia, because it's racist. It's racist to focus on China if you're looking for China spies. Now, that's kind of crazy. No one said it was racist to, to root out Russian spies during the Cold War, right? So they make this argument in early February of 2022, a year into the uh, Biden presidency. And guess what happens? With less than two weeks after that letter was public and the pressure campaign began, Merrick Garland announces the attorney general, same one who named the special prosecutor yesterday, he's shutting down the FBI program, the China Initiative, as it was known. Well, a lot of universities have been clamoring for that for a long time. It didn't happen until UPenn became public about it. And then very quickly it happens. And what's interesting about the timing of that is that at the moment Merrick Garland shut it down, well, the FBI director, Chris Ray, was saying, hey, the China threat is more intense now than it's ever been. And academia is one of the places for doing it, even cited a case of spying that went on through universities. And Chris Ray gets overruled and UPenn that gave Joe Biden a job, gave him his center, got its top two officials rewarded with ambassadorships and got a lot of China money. Well, it prevailed. Well, last night, James Comer, the chairman of the House Government Oversight and Accountability Committee, spoke with us on the TV show, and he announced on that show he is expanding the already existing congressional investigation into the Biden family and its finances and its foreign uh, money-making machine to include the University of Pennsylvania, the China money, and the lobbying of the Justice Department. In other words, reacting and including what we found in the Justin News story into a key congressional investigation. That's a big expansion, big moment. We're going to have Chairman Comer's comments on this podcast. He'll be the second guest. We're going to play that interview from last night. We've adapted it for podcasting. You're going to hear that. That's going to be a very big moment in a very important investigation in American history right now. The classified documents are also a path for investigation into Biden family finances and China. That's a very important development. All right, but we're going to kick off the podcast today with one of the great minds in all the national security spectrum. She served in the Trump administration. She's well regarded across all political parties. Kiran Skinner, one of the great national security experts in our country. She's going to join us. We're going to have a good conversation about Russia, Ukraine, China, the Japan visit this week, the Mexico-North America summit earlier this week with Joe Biden, the state of the fallout from Afghanistan, 
the border. All those things with Karen Skinner at the top of the show. Then we'll turn to James Comer. And then we'll finish up with one of our great reporters here at Just the News. Natalia Middlestadt covers election integrity for us. There have been some big developments there, including an expedited court hearing for Kerry Lake in Arizona, challenging the election results there. Natalia will bring us up to speed on all of those things. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, first up, Karen Skinner, one of the great national security minds in all of America. She'll be up, followed by Chairman James Comer of the House Oversight Committee, Big announcement on our show last night. You're going to hear it here. And a major expansion of the Biden investigation. Now going to look at the issues of China money at the university that hired him and where those classified documents were found. We'll have all that after these messages. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS. They know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Hey, folks, if you're a homeowner and you're like me, you want to protect your home, right? But when's the last time you checked on the title to your home? If you never have, listen to this. A new report on homeowners shows we all now have $16 trillion in equity. That's an all-time high in America. That's why you need protection from a scam the FBI calls house stealing. That's when the equity in all of our homes is the target, sadly, of scammers. If nobody's watching the title to your home, these scammers can transfer your title to their name, take out loans, and your equity could be gone. Poof, gone. You have to protect your equity from this despicable crime right now with triple lock protection from my good friends at HomeTitleLock.com. The first step is to check on your home's title to see if it's still in your name. Sign up with your address at HomeTitleLock.com and be sure to use the promo code JUSTNEWS. They're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title in your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time. Go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. One of the things I like to do on this show is sometimes we get distracted by a lot of the crazy big news of the week, and that's okay. It's important. But there are other things going on that might have not gotten the attention that they deserve. And one of those this week was the visit of Japanese officials to the United States to talk about a larger strategy between the United States and our Pacific allies to countering 
the growing aggression, the growing malign influence of China all across the world, but particularly in the Pacific Rim. Well, our next guest, she didn't miss a beat. She's always on top of some of the most important foreign policy stories that affect each of us. She is Chiron Skinner. She's currently the top professor of international relations and politics at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You've seen her with her work at Stanford on Fox News with the uh, Hoover Center. She is really one of the greatest uh, national security thinkers in our country today. And she joins us right now. Kyron, great to have you back on the show. Thank you for that introduction. And let me just quickly say that the conversation you've been having with the American public has been so informative on issues that sometimes um, aren't captured um, because they aren't the top line story of the day, but they have a big impact on the future of our country. So I'm always happy to support um, you as you and educate the American public. That is so kind. You do such a great job. I love why I follow you on Twitter. I love the great insights you have. Um, this was a big moment. Japan is really stepping to the plate to counter the China threat. And I wonder if you can bring us up to speed. What were the highlights of this visit? Were there any missed opportunity where the Biden administration could have done more? And what does this say about our allies and their recognition that China is a really significant threat going forward? I think this moment was important. Um, it wasn't. It's not getting as much attention um, as because I think of the, the Biden revelation um, of this week with his his own document scandal, which may even surpass that of um, the supposed one that um, President Trump had. But it, what happened this week and what's been happening recently in the Indo-Pacific is um, really, I think, uh, an and going forward of the effort that Donald Trump as president put a, um, a great focus on, and that was developing an Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, he and National Security Robert O'Brien ended the administration um, by declassifying documents around the Indo-Pacific and China strategy of the administration. Many people ignored it. I hope your audience takes a look at those documents. The president of the United States, the previous president, focused in the Indo-Pacific on the Quad, those four countries, in, a, um, in addition to the United States, Japan, India, Australia, and how they could work together on security issues, on political economy issues, on encircling China with a community of, of free states and a broader coalition. The Japanese got the memo. And I think that's what's happened in the past year. They're putting, they're, they are now doing something that no one thought they would ever do, that for many decades after World War II, many of us in the West did not want them to do. There's a new commitment now to go from 1% to 2% of gross domestic product for, toward defense. It will take them about five years, but if they achieve that goal, it makes Japan the third largest military spender in the world behind the U.S. and China. This is a sea change for, for Japan. You know, Japan is the only nation on earth, I believe, to have formally declared, um, you know, that it will, um, will not be involved in war. And that's because of World War II. It's held to that pledge. This isn't, they're not renouncing their longstanding um, tendency. But they're now taking greater agency for their own security and, in fact, Western security. It was Donald Trump who campaigned in 2016 
on the idea that there had to be greater burden sharing, um, not just for NATO, but all of our allies. Japan is now taking leadership in the Indo-Pacific with its military spending, with its sophisticated weapons development programs, with its growing partnership with the United States, um, with its decision to turn um, to the South and look at the Taiwan problem as its own problem. I think this is a new Japan that we're seeing right now and a deepening of the Indo-Pacific strategy that Donald Trump started. It is amazing. That quad strategy was really transformative. It built on years of talk, but it actually implemented a real strategy. And from that, I think of all the allies in the region, it, it seems to me that Japan has most quickly escalated its strategy to make sure that it can rise to the occasion of what we all need. There seems to me that there was this wake-up call. I mean, I think my reading of this and in talking to other experts, Japan's been moving in this direction slowly, encouraged by the Trump doctrine and Prime Minister Abe and now Prime Minister Kishida are both moving this forward in a very constructive way. But last August, during some saber rattling when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, the Chinese, for the first time in any time I can remember my history, they fired some missiles through Japan's economic zone, sort of the protected waters. That had to be a wake-up call for Japan, didn't it? I, yes, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it was that incident, but many more. About 90 missile launches, including ballistic missiles, by North Korea last year. I think the, the Ukraine war as well. Um, watching that war and its global effects. Um, I think the, you know, the most interesting story of, of 2022 is that we started the year, um, with, without the war and, and with countries in Europe and the European security belt, um, fairly stable in their position. By middle end of 2022, we had the high north countries of Finland and Sweden, who had determined that they would remain neutral forever, um, join, preparing to join NATO on a close pathway to membership. We had an election in Italy in the Mediterranean that brings um, Southern Europe more into um, the Western camp, and a determination in Central and Eastern Europe to resist Russia. So all of a sudden, Donald Rumsfeld's idea of the old Europe versus the new Europe, the old Europe being Western Europe versus the new Europe being Central and Eastern Europe. Well, that concept got magnified. So the new Europe is Northern, um, the high North, Northern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, and Southern Europe, all in the Western camp. If you're Japan and you're looking at all of this and you're thinking the Western camp is growing in terms of its economy, in terms of its security belt, um, we have to be part of it. And the Ukraine war gives a number of lessons and concerns. I think that's one of them. And then also watching the fact um, that China has not really abandoned its junior partner, Russia, in this very bloody war, I think also has um, affected the Japanese. They're making a grand strategic, um, I think, bargain with themselves and the Western world in building up their defense and deepening ties with the United States and the G7 more broadly. 
You did such a great job of describing how much the world changed before our eyes last year. And I know they say elections have consequences, and I think this really proves that Joe Biden's election has had a significant consequence. When you take the sum total of those activities that you just laid out so brilliantly, it seems as though our allies are not as confident that the U.S. can handle this alone. And they're beginning to do things like develop counterstrike activities, join alliances. Is there a belief that maybe the uh, U.S., as a result of the Biden policy changes, can't be relied on as, as, as good an ally or as reliable an ally or as clear an ally as it's been in the past? Is that what's driving some of these major decisions by countries that really sat on the sidelines for a long time? Um, I don't quite see it that way. I think there is a grain of truth in what you've said. But what I learned as a State Department official, especially when we traveled abroad, that our partners and allies um, listen to Americans, and they often understand us better than we understand ourselves. We, they understand that the Biden administration is a temporary, um, a, a temporary operation in Washington, and they, they understand that help will be coming in a very different and more strategic way later. But they understand also that there is an enduring quality to the United States, even when it loses some global credibility, which it often does. It's still the main show in town. The United States, for all of its faults, is 60% or better of the military assistance to Ukraine. We can debate whether that's right or wrong, but the U.S. is doing it. Now, the European Union is the lead in humanitarian aid, but the U.S. is right there as well. I think we have so much long-term credibility that even in the short term, when an administration goes away from U.S. national interest, our partners and allies and even our adversaries understand us better than we do ourselves, knowing that we will come back to full strength again. Yeah, that's a good reminder. You're right. The United States always has been there when the resolve is needed, even when we have moments or bumps. We've had them in the Carter years, the Biden years. Our track record is pretty darn good. Our credit card has got great credit behind it. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Russia-Ukraine war. It looks like it's settling in for a long slog. Ukraine made a lot of offenses, um, gains. Russia claims today to have captured a city that's in dispute. And quite frankly, it doesn't seem like a very important city strategically. Maybe just important for Russia to claim some sort of victory because they haven't had any. And there's a growing pressure that seems to be almost inevitable that the West, led by the United States, will in fact provide tanks to Ukraine, something we've been reluctant to do in the past, more offensive strike weapons from the West coming in. How important a moment is that and what consequences or upside does it bring? Well, I think, you know, there hasn't been much Russian victory. In fact, there have been Russian reverses and and. and re- months, especially in Kharkiv, Kirshan, these were embarrassing defeats for Russia. Those are bigger than the claim now of some town in eastern Ukraine as a victory. It does not speak to the larger issue of Donbass and that it's about to have a huge victory there. So I'd caution, you know, anyone saying Russia's now turning the tide. Um, But even in this so-called victory, which is in dispute, um, There is an eternal debate and dispute going on among Russian military fighters about who did what. So you've got the mercenary group, the Wagner group, 
um, which is being reported on increasingly in the Western press, um, saying this is our victory and our victory alone. And then you have Russian military forces saying, no, we did this. And then you have the um, Kremlin um, saying um, it's some combination of both. This is not a good sign when mercenaries are actually helping lead this war. Mercenaries can't do it alone. The fact that um, last fall um, Putin called up reservists, um, hundreds of thousands of reservists, some of them defected, some of them ran to Moldova, some of them tried to get out of the country to go other places, um, that they are generally demoralized, largely unprepared, um, and the Wagner group is taking credit for this, what appears to be a relatively minor victory. If it's It seems inconsequential other than from a psychological perspective for the Russians. Are you surprised, and I, I, you know, we've reported regularly, I mean, the Russian military has underperformed in ways that no one I knew before this war started would ever imagine. I mean, there was a belief that Russia kind of got its uh, a better military together the last 15, 20 years. Uh, it really seems to be an underperformer for the amount of money, the amount of hardware, and the perceived strategy we thought they have. What are the experts like you thinking about the quality of the Russian military after what we've learned? I, th- I, th- um, I think there is some surprise, but the biggest surprise is for Vladimir Putin himself. And one of my colleagues has said this, and I think it's absolutely true. War is the great auditor of any country, of its own military, of its own society, of its resiliency. This war has audited Russia. It has um, demonstrated that its military is weak, that the morale was weak before it started. It has audited Russia on the matter of free speech, which it has attempted to suppress under Putin and dissent. Uh, We're seeing Russian society in a larger, clearer way as a result of this war. No one wants war, but it does audit a, a nation. It's audited Ukraine in this way. There's more resiliency. There's more commitment to to nationhood. um, And there is now a firmer understanding about the skeptics in Europe about the importance of expanding the European Union for countries like Ukraine and Moldova um, and expanding NATO itself. So I think, you know, we don't want war, but occasionally it happens and it leads to some course corrections. The, re- the map of Europe is being rewritten in the direction of the democratic West as a result of this conflict. That is a big alignment. It's a funny how something that started one way has turned into something very different, bringing our allies closer to us and exposing that maybe Russia wasn't as much the superpower we thought. I want to turn to one other event this week. It started the week while we were scratching at the classified documents and other things. There was this North American summit, two allies, Mexico and Canada, meeting with our president, Joe Biden. There were some awkward moments. It didn't seem like it had a lot of heft, but there was a, a final communique. I think they called it the Declaration of North America. What did you take away from the meeting? Were any gains, any fissures visible in what you saw there? There is an attempt to, to focus on um, the Americas in this administration. There was the Summit of the Americas. Um, earlier last year in Los Angeles. And so this North America summit builds on some of the momentum that happened um, in L.A. And um, I think from a more conservative um, America First standpoint, 
there's a lot of disagreement with how um, Washington is viewing um, its partners in North America. But what I did appreciate about this summit is that there was one, that there is an attempt to keep Mexico in particular, um, which is like Turkey in a way. It is uniquely situated geopolitically where it can go east, west, north, or south. And I think the summit was to keep Mexico going north and west because there are a lot of pools in that country which is barely sovereign at this point for the reasons that we know, cartels, trafficking, um, you know, mismanagement, corruption in government. I do think that that's a worthy activity because certain countries in the world are just ground zero for our own future. And another way of putting it, I think a country like Mexico, if we don't keep it moving with us, despite its problem, is a canary in the coal mine for broader problems in the Western Hemisphere. So I think starting there, when you, you know, we, we're so focused on Ukraine. We're so focused on some of the problems in the broader Middle East. We are so focused on this larger pivot to the Indo-Pacific. But for the United States, the most immediate, I think, national security problem is the fact that something has happened, and I hope we can talk about this at length in in another program, that with what's happened in Brazil, with the the election there, what happened in Colombia months ago, we have for the first time um, in our history a set of neighbors in, um, in the Western Hemisphere that are largely socialist, almost all of them, except Dominican Republic, Guatemala. For the most part, we have democratically elected socialist regimes with parliaments behind them. We aren't talking about that. If there's a failure in the Biden administration, it is to articulate that problem. But it's not a problem for them. That's the thing, right? They don't see it as a problem, do they? No, and that opens the door for China and Russia in the Western Hemisphere. So we have a, you know, a sleeping giant problem right now of socialists running basically the whole region. And so any moment that we can try to keep meeting and organizing ourselves um, in the Americas, we need to do it. We're weaker now at home in terms of our own region. We used to call it our backyard. It's not our backyard. And, um, and it, you know, it has the capacity to have a huge impact on our security and future, especially in the era of great power competition, but also something else. You know, we've been talking about the Indo-Pacific. In addition to the focus on Japan, the Biden administration is building on what the Trump administration did with South Korea. More work is being done on closer ties, not just in the military realm with South Korea, but supply chain issues. And, you know, and, and that's really important. If we're going to nearshore and reshore, we have to have, um, you know, countries in Central and Latin America that can be part of this new reshoring, nearshoring, um, bring manufacturing back to our region. We can't do it alone. And that worries me. If, if someone asks me what keeps you up at night, it's actually what I've just stated. Yeah, I agree with you. It's the single greatest story that most Americans don't know. And it isn't just an organic movement. I think a lot of people, oh, maybe uh, Latin America every so often flips social as it comes back. This is really driven by China's investments and its business and its courtship right under our noses. 
Um, I want to ask you about one last thing. It has a political element to it, but I think it also really truly is a foreign policy question. When you see the comfort level that the Biden family had with doing business with China, and it's many, right? We know we learned this week because of the university where the president went that it was one of the largest university recipients of China money the last decade. And most of that money came in the small window while Joe Biden was here. His son had multiple China business deals. Joe Biden originally, when he started campaigning in 19, said, I don't buy that China's our enemy. They're never going to be a threat to us. And he really downplayed that in this 2019 comments. He's obviously evolved a little bit, but is the the Biden family's relationship, particularly when it relates to business deals and enrichment, does it create a distrust in the rest of the world that maybe Joe Biden isn't as serious about the China threat as we all need to be? Does it affect our allies, our enemies? And what does it do for Americans, even in our own country, about trusting him? Yes, that's the critical question on developing a China strategy. Um, I have always said that um, being rhetorically tough on China has nothing to do with having a China strategy. And I think this administration is doing what some in the Trump administration did, though it wasn't the president. Um, they're rhetorically tough on China without rewriting in the State Department the regional strategy for East Asia and the Pacific. They don't want to touch it. There's a new quote-unquote China house at the State Department. First of all, I think that's a disparaging term. It doesn't say anything about developing a rigorous um, geopolitical approach to, deal to dealing with China. Um, I don't think the administration is really taking on China in a way that would let them know a new sheriff's in town, so to speak. Um, we had um, initially Wendy Sherman, number two at the State Department, met with the Chinese early in the administration and said, I want to work with you. And then the administration was lectured about its own racism, um, its own DEI problems by the Chinese. Um, and that's happened numerous times. Um, I don't think it understands that this is a problem well beyond what it wants to address. And that, you know, there's a lot of talk about the CCP, the Communist Party of China, and how terrible it is. And if only they would go away, it would be a new day. No. Um, this is, I think, CCP and um, negative statements about China are new, you know, ways of actually doing very little about China. And the Chinese know it. They could care less about rhetoric. They want, you know, they want to see real policy. Yes. And, and so it show me beyond, you know, the quad is important, but it's not, it wasn't started by Biden. It wasn't even started by Trump, frankly. It comes out of the Obama administration. You know, they are maintaining the quad, expanding the quad, closer ties with Japan, more coordination with South Korea. The um, last year they concluded the U.S., Australia, um, U.K. agreement to help build nuclear subs. Um, for Australia. They're doing some big activities, but what they aren't doing, I think, is knitting it all together to a grand strategy around China. That's yet to happen. We don't have a containment doctrine the way we did for the Soviet Union. We don't have an Article X, which I was attempting to do, the kind of George Kennan long telegram for China. I don't think they'll get there. I don't think they're going to think that deep. And I don't know that anyone can in government now um, but given the pace of U.S. foreign policy. But a second Trump term, I believe we were going to 
um, really gained the momentum to develop a broader strategy beyond tariff. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. You can see, and I've talked to lots of people, including Mike Pompeo, that clearly was underway. Karen, we know every time you come on here why Pepperdine is so lucky and why everywhere that you work has been blessed by your keen thinking. We need more people like you in government to remind us of the obligation, the idea to define the American interest and then follow through with it. This has been a great conversation. I know we're going to get you back on. I want to explore more the next time we're together on Latin America because I do think it is the greatest hidden secret and hidden danger that most Americans really don't know about yet. I look forward to that conversation, and it is important. Yeah, very good. Well, it's a great honor to have you on. We will be sure to get you on real soon, but thanks for the time today, and we'll be checking in real soon. Thanks. Thank you, my friend. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, that interview I mentioned with James Comer, the new chairman of the House Oversight Committee, major expansion into that issue. We just talked about China and the Biden family. We'll have that right after this commercial message. You know what, folks? Stress may be why you can't lose weight. If you've got moderate to high stress like I do, a doctor-formulated weight loss supplement called Lean could be your solution. Chronic stress wreaks havoc on blood sugar, which can cause your body to store excess fat. Stress can also slow your metabolism, which fuels weight gain. And you know all about stress eating and sugar cravings, right? Now the good news. The studied ingredients in Lean have been shown to help maintain healthy blood sugar levels, help optimize metabolism, and keep your appetite under control. Now, if your life is a bit stressful like mine and you want to lose weight, add lean to your healthy diet and exercise lifestyle. Now, get 15% off and free shipping at takelean.com. That's takelean.com and enter the promo code justnews15. That's the promo code justnews15 at takelean.com. One more time, takelean.com. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Joining us is the new chairman of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, Kentucky Congressman James Comer. Chairman, great to have you on the show, sir. Thanks for having me. I know how busy you are, but I want to start with your reaction. A couple of months ago, Joe Biden was wagging his finger at Donald Trump about classified documents. Now he's making flip remarks when he had documents in his own garage that were classified. Your reaction to that revelation today? How ironic. You know, Joe Biden was quick to point blame at Donald Trump, quick to say he was irresponsible and sloppy. Uh, but what we now know is uh, he did even worse. You know, the, the fact that uh, we only found this out through investigative reporting, we didn't find this out from uh, the White House being transparent like they promised the American people they would when he was a candidate for, for presidency uh, is, is very concerning. You know, we have a lot of questions about who had access to those documents at the Biden Center and at uh, President Biden's home. And we're going to uh, expect the Department of Justice to treat the uh, mishandling of classified information with Biden in exactly the same manner they've treated it with Trump. 
Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. And the dichotomy between the seriousness with which President Trump's case was handled and this one for our audience who haven't who have not seen this exchange. And Congressman, I want uh, to get your reaction to this on the other side of this clip. Let's roll it. Classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, But as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. As is my Corvette. Makes you wonder which ones uh, he values more as far as the security. But he seems pretty flippant about it. It, How can he help himself uh, get out of this unscathed? I'm sure his handlers were uh, fixing to get the cane out and jerk him off that podium because uh, the thing that he uh, defended himself on, he was uh, very quick to criticize President Trump on 60 Minutes and other places about his handling of classified documents. Look, you know, the the fact that uh, Joe Biden said that they did everything right, they found the documents, his lawyers, as they were moving, which think about this, you have lawyers move your boxes around when you change locations. I mean, that would be a very expensive moving team. And I don't know many lawyers that would actually physically do that. But uh, according to Biden in the White House, their lawyers were moving those boxes and they, they discovered this and they did the right thing. They went and told the National Archives, I'm not buying that. I don't believe any of that. They said, well, there were only 10 documents. I don't believe that. And I think that uh, the National Archives is even in more hot water with the House Oversight Committee. They should have, on November 2nd, when those first batch of documents were turned in, they should have immediately briefed the the then chairperson of the House Oversight Committee, Carolyn Maloney, and myself as ranking member to give us an update of what went on. But they failed to do that. Uh, Why did they not do that? We wouldn't even know about it if it weren't for investigative reporting. So this is another cover up by the Biden administration. And we're going to uh, continue our investigation and try to follow the money from China and see if, in fact, this administration is compromised and who from China uh, or any of these other countries uh, like uh, Iran and and, uh, Ukraine that there were classified documents who all had access to those documents. Important, important question. So I want to ask you about the story we broke overnight. University of Pennsylvania pays Joe uh, Biden a salary, like 900 grand over two and a half years. He um, he has a center with his name on it there. That's where some of the documents are found. Meanwhile, that university is collecting boatloads of uh, Chinese money, 67.7 million over six years, almost all of it in the time frame that Joe Biden's affiliated with. And then they turn around in 2022, pressure the Biden Justice Department to shut down the most important tool, the FBI, was using to root out Chinese spies in academia. Your thoughts on that and what might your committee do to dig into that? First of all, congratulations on breaking that story. That is a big story because that proves that this administration could in fact be compromised by China. This is an example of China uh, with their money influencing American policy. Every person that has any knowledge or experience with academia knows that China has infiltrated all of our research universities with Chinese spies. That is a fact. Everyone knows it. What they did, John, uh, and you did a great job breaking this, they encouraged the Pennsylvania, where his Biden center is, where all the Chinese money goes to fund all these Biden initiatives. They encouraged the FBI to drop that 
China Initiative investigation. What else are they influencing uh, this administration to do? What else is China influencing uh, this administration and the Biden family? I mean, this is very concerning. So we're sending a letter to Penn requesting documents related to the Chinese donations. We want a list of individuals involved, uh, whoever uh, was involved in soliciting donations from China. We want all communications because I think this is very important. This is another aspect of the potential for this family uh, to be compromised. Look at the pattern here from China. Anonymous donations to the Biden Center for Diplomacy, which paid Joe Biden a salary. Anonymous donors into Hunter Biden's shady LLCs from China. Anonymous purchasers of art from China at Hunter's new art gallery in New York City. There is a pattern here of massive amounts of money flowing into Biden interest. And this is why we're investigating this family. And I think what's happened in the last 48 hours with the mainstream media, they see the legitimacy of this investigation. And I think we've got a lot of momentum now and a lot of purpose behind what we're doing. And hopefully we'll be able to get some answers very soon. Such important stuff. stuff. Congressman, I know from the conversations we've had with you and other Republicans in Congress that uh, subpoenas will be forthcoming for this information. But up until and and at that point, what do you expect the level of cooperation to be? Do you expect to experience a lot of pushback or do you think that 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 maybe they'll surprise you? Well, I'll give you an example. The, the Democrat National Committee's been hiring outside groups to attack Jim Jordan and me. They're calling it uh, investigating the investigators. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they, they already issued a statement. The White House said all of those requests that you asked us when you were in the minority, we just kind of threw them in the trash because you didn't matter. You were in the minority. Well, now I'm the chairman of the committee. Now we have subpoena power. So we've re-requested that information. You should never have to subpoena the federal government for information pertaining to the government, information pertaining to American tax dollars. Uh, we're hopeful that they'll cooperate with us. I know the White House has hired some big uh, legal guns to come in, some big PR firms to come in and try to spin all this stuff and try to attack uh, the credibility of our investigation. But what's happened in the last 48 hours uh, is that our investigation has just been justified and we're going to move forward. And I think the American people are going to support uh, the work that we're doing. And I think they will force this administration to comply with our requests. Yeah, um, the will of the people. That's always the most powerful tool we have. We got about a minute left, so I want to ask about this. Uh, FBI director made very clear just before this China initiative was shut down under pressure from the university and others that this was a critical tool and that this problem with academia was so large. He gives a speech at the Reagan Center. Two weeks later, it shut down. In the process of that, the argument that these universities and apologists were using is that somehow focusing on Chinese spies is racial profiling. I wanted to get your reaction to that. You're a very common sense man. I'd love to understand that argument, whether that rings true with you at all. I'm sick and tired of this wokeism. I'm sick and tired of Democrats playing the race card. Look, we know China has influenced our research universities. Virginia Fox is chairwoman of the House Education Committee, also a good member of my oversight committee. This is something we were going to look into on the oversight committee, the Chinese influence at our universities from a from a spy standpoint. This has to stop. And the fact that uh, Penn would lead the effort to to end the FBI investigation of the Chinese espionage going on in our universities is very concerning. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. If you read justthenews.com, as I know so many of you do every day, you're going to recognize this next byline, one of our most talented reporters. She covers election integrity, has worked really amazing stories in the area of military personnel thrown from their jobs because of the vaccine mandate. Also covers a whole lot of other great stuff. She is Natalia Middlestad, and she joins us right now. Natalia, great to have you in the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. You've had some really fun stories uh, the last couple of days. One of them, a spot development. Uh, last night, Carrie Lake's election case got expedited status. It's going to be on a faster timetable. Tell us a little bit about that. I think uh, originally it was set for March, but now it's been kicked upward, isn't that right? Yep, that's correct. So her appeal of her election lawsuit, which um, a uh, superior court in Maricopa County last month had um, decided against her with her election challenge for the gubernatorial race against uh, now Governor Katie Hobbs. So she had appealed to the Arizona Court of Appeals, and then um, she had asked for a special action petition. And uh, They originally had the court date for March, like you said, but then they upped it to February 1st. And so it will be uh, a lot sooner than initially anticipated, and they'll be trying to get that done and resolved. Um, pretty quickly. So we'll see how that goes. The original ruling was kind of interesting because the judge noticed that there were a lot of problems in Maricopa County that the county should be ashamed of, but you know, unequivocally ruled that there was no reason to reverse the election. What were some of the things that people don't dispute that went on in Maricopa County? In fact, I think I just saw, I think you wrote this, that Maricopa County's announced its own investigation into the whole printer fiasco. What do we know that everyone would say Democrat, Republican, Independent did go wrong in Maricopa County? What's accepted as reality right now? Yeah, so uh, with regard to what's happened there, we've got um, some things such as you mentioned, the printers and the scanners. So basically, we know that um, not only were the printers not printing correctly, which Maricopa has uh, noted, but because they weren't, then the tabulators couldn't count them correctly. Um, and so they have acknowledged that. They all, uh, Maricopa County also acknowledged that um, when the ballots that weren't counted by the tabulators were put into door three. And then when at the end of election day, they had to open them up. There was uh, the door, I guess, separating the door three ballots that weren't counted from the uh, ballots that were tabulated. And so they got intermixed. And so that was another issue. Um, in addition to uh, people having issues with whether or not they were signed out of poll pads for vote centers when they left um, because lines are so long. That was another issue. So there have been uh, a myriad of issues on election day that 
uh, people have reported as having. It's so interesting because Arizona was one of the early states like Oregon and Washington State to go to early voting and no excuse absentee ballots. But it has not ever really gotten the system mastered. You had a story maybe about a month ago that went to, you know, a lot of the problems that we've saw this time and in 2020 dated back to 2012. And at that time, the mainstream media was calling Maricopa County an embarrassment to the country. Tell us a little bit about the history of problems. Why, why does this county, the largest county, well-funded, have so much trouble counting ballots when other states do it just fine? Yeah, that's definitely the question that people are asking. And it does appear that maybe one of the issues could be that um, it seems like every election cycle, Maricopa County tries to do something different with how they run their elections. And so um, perhaps because as a result of trying new things uh, every election, they haven't you know, adjusted to the last one. And so now they're trying to figure out something else and then it doesn't roll out as they anticipate. So um, they've had that with the, they had the electronic pull pads first rolled out. And then um, when they actually had changed, they used to have um, hundreds of vote centers on election day. And then they had dropped it to 60 in 2016, which resulted in people staying in lines until after midnight to vote. Um, so it does, and that we even got the Obama Justice Department involved when they, saw how bad the lines were that year. Um, so yeah, it seems like every year they're trying something different that ends up um, backfiring in some way. Yeah, sometimes having some stability, there's something to be said for that. And I know the people of Arizona are wary of being the laughingstock, or certainly the negative focus of, all, of so much of what's happened in that county over the last few years. Another fun story. So we, we have a new governor in Arizona, Democrat for a long time, first time in a long time. Katie Hobbs didn't do a lot during the campaign. She didn't debate. She had a very low profile, didn't do a lot of media interviews, didn't do a lot of media avails. She starts as governor, and it seems like, as your story this morning so aptly captured, she's had a kind of a bumpy start, some giggly moments that remind us of Kamala Harris and some walkouts and protests. Tell us what's been going on under the new governorship of Katie Hobbs in Arizona. Yeah, so as you mentioned, when she uh, first recited her uh, oath of office uh, last Monday, beginning of January, she uh, was laughing right before she recited that she would support the Constitution. Um, however, it looks like she was laughing with her mom. So um, there's something going on there. But uh, yeah, that was kind of like, oops, uh, <laughs> not a good look uh, when you're starting off your uh, tenure as governor. And then um, with regard to the speech walkout, so it was interesting because when she gave her state of state address earlier that day, the Arizona Freedom Caucus, which consists of Republican state legislators, uh, said they were going to file a lawsuit over Katie Hobbs' very first executive order, which is strengthening uh, anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ state employees and contractors. Um, and so basically the caucus is saying she, you know, basically legislating from the governor's office. And so she's, uh, you know, legally not allowed to do that. So we're going to sue her over that. And some of those same legislators later that day when she gave her state of the state address walked out during it um, because they were not uh, fond of what she was saying about uh, abortion laws and some other things. And they were just like, OK, we can't uh, stand listening anymore. So they walked out. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's that. In addition to the inaugural events that she had, there was um, donation amounts that she has not disclosed. She's said who her donors are, but she has not said how much they've given. And so that is something that uh, State Senate President Pro Tempore is suggesting they might investigate. 
to get more information on. For those who don't cover Arizona politics every day, the legislature is in Republican hands, the Democratic governor. It seems like it's going to be a prickly relationship over the next few years. And it's the same legislature that did that famous audit uh, last summer, right? Or maybe it's two summers ago now. Really fascinating. Natalia, real quickly, one of the other areas you do so well at is focusing on the plight of men and women in our armed forces who serve bravely, actually have tremendous skill sets, had great ratings in most cases, but were squeezed out or sidelined for refusing on religious grounds to take the vaccine. Now, the Congress has ended the vaccine mandate, and then the Pentagon followed up by doing so. But there are still a large number of people who were thrown out before that haven't been restored or haven't gotten their payback. Tell us a little bit. We On Sunday on the podcast, we're going to have the story of a really amazing ROTC candidate who got into the reserves, but she was really sidelined for two years. And, and she's going to tell her personal story. But tell us the state. There, there's several thousand armed services members all in limbo. Isn't that right? Yes. Uh, there are many across, uh, yeah, all branches of the military who were uh, forced voluntarily to separate from the armed services because they weren't vaccinated. Um, now the DOD has said that um, in the rescinding of its uh, vaccine policies that uh, nobody will be separated solely based on their vaccination status. However, that doesn't um, prevent them from being discriminated discriminated against regarding where they're assigned or what duties they get or deployments. Um, and so there are still many uh, service members who could also not only be discriminated against for where they get to work, but in addition to those who have already been put in the separation process or have already been removed from the military um, as a result of not being vaccinated. They have not um, gotten restoration for that um, or back pay or anything like that. So that is a significant issue that um, has yet to be resolved. Yeah, it sure is. And it's something that I'm sure we're going to see play out in the courts and in the military and in the Congress for some time to come. Natalia, we love all the great work you do. We're so lucky to have you at Just the News. What's the fastest way for people to follow you on Twitter, Truth? Where, where are all of your coordinates for social media? Yep, I'm on Twitter at, at Natalia, B-M-I-T-T-E-L, on Truth Social at Natalia, M-I-T-T-E-L, and of course on JustTheNews.com. Well, we're sure glad you're there. We have a lot of fun watching the great work you do every day. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in. Happy Friday. I hope you had a good enjoyment of the great guests we had on the show, big news on the show. We're going to do it all weekend long. We've got Matt Whitaker and a former FBI official coming on to talk about the state of the FBI, the new weaponization committee. That'll be Saturday and then Sunday, an all-star lineup of incredible guests. So all weekend long, we'll have you covered. Be sure to tune in. And if you're bored and looking for something to do, you got five minutes, go to the Apple store. If you haven't done it already, go to the Android store and download the Just the News apps. It's a great way to listen, watch, and read Just the News content. All right, folks, that wraps it up. God bless you. Have a great night. We'll be back tomorrow with our special Saturday edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. 
Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.